Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig and welcome to this week's episode of the Full 60. All right, this, per- this person is... Completely overqualified, I would say. I don't even know how to introduce Ned Coletti here. He, longtime GM of the, the Dodgers, Emmy award-winning analyst. Uh, he is a best-selling author. Um, he, he's done everything. He's a, he's a professor, a speaker. Also, uh, he finds time to scout as an NHL scout for the San Jose Sharks. Ned Coletti, how are you, Ned? I'm doing excellent. Great to be with you, Craig. Oh, it was funny. I was going and, and I read, I read, um, I was looking at the reviews of your book because that's, I, I think that's just where I'm drawing, you know, you want to see what people think. And you had a quote from John Shulian, who I love. I'm just a fan of John. I don't know him at all. Um, but it's, it, it was, a, it was about your book, The Big Chair. And it said, what puts this book in a category of its own is its big thumping heart. And man, do I, like, I love stories with heart. I love people with heart. And like that to me is the ultimate compliment of a book. So off. That's well, awesome. it was it was pretty cool, and I was honored that uh, that John, who was um, uh, one of my idols growing up, really mm. somebody that I that I really uh, appreciated and, and loved his work uh, for decades, uh, that that he would review it like that was was incredible for me. Yeah, you know? that's awesome. Um, all right, let, me, let I want to start with you. It's funny, like you know, when you look at your bio, all these incredible things you've done. And then there's like this one line, by the way, you know, is, is a San Jose Sharks scout. Um, but I'm sure to you, it's way more than a footnote, right? Like you seem like somebody who gets into something and, you know, you don't seem to go halfway and you were hired in, I want to say September of 2019. And then the kind of everything went sideways <laughs> in the world. How has that gone for you? Like how has that, that kind of career path gone? Well, well, first of all, it's uh, it's an honor for me, yeah, to work in hockey, and it's an honor for me to work in professional sports, and and really an honor to work in that organization and for the people I work with, uh, Doug Wilson, senior and junior, Joe Will. Um, you know, I've I've known them for a long time. I've appreciated and respected their work for a long time, and and probably side to side with baseball is my love for hockey. And that they would give me the opportunity that they did. And it was ironic because that is actually like the start date. Okay, that's when it was announced. But I did it the year before. Oh, you did? I didn't know I, that. I tried it. I, I said, let's, you know, they said, would you want to do this? And I had other GMs from the NHL because I, I spent a lot of time in that league as far as watching, listening, talking mm-hmm. to people, learning, uh, getting, you know, doing a deep dive into the sport. You know, many times I've, I've been about five or six world juniors and mm. spent a lot of time with, with, uh, you know, the Wilsons and Brian Burke and Tony Granato and Dean Lombardi and on and on and John McDonough with the Hawks. He and I worked together uh, in Chicago for a long time. And so it was that they took a chance on me and I took it, you know, I, I decided, yeah, you know, I'm going to open up time for this because mm-hmm. it, it's, it's that powerful to me to be able to be able to do it. And um, I did it. They came to me and they said, would, would you want to do this? We'd love to have you do this. And I says, yeah. And then we said, but, you know, let's we'll never let friendship get in the way. We'll never, you know, and, you know you're not going to take me if I can't help you. I'm, right. I refuse to, to do this any other way. So let's try it for a year. Let's mm-hmm. try it for a year. I'm not going to get any compensation for it. 
um, I'll, I'll do it. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, they gave me certain teams to watch and this and that. So I did it for a year, almost like a, you know, a 60 some year old intern, you know, <laughs> right, right. But, uh, you know, it, it proved to be a, a great thing. I've probably written 3,500 reports in, in two years. No and, kidding. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, you're part of your question about the, uh, you know, the pandemic and, in yeah. the world going upside down. I had just gotten off a big East Coast trip about, about three or four weeks before everything uh, uh, collapsed. And I, I was driving to San Diego that day that everything closed down to watch uh, our minor league team, the Barracuda, play. And I got a call halfway down that they were going to cancel everything. So I just made a left turn and drove to Arizona mm-hmm. and uh, stayed there for like nine months, you know, on, a, on, a, on part of the journey. But, you know, yeah. a lot of the stuff I've done has been on video. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'll watch a game two or three times, and you know, there's all ser- types of services that that help out scouts. So uh, I've watched a, I watched a ton of hockey. Hmm. It's funny that this is coming up. I just spent some time with Craig Conroy, who's an AGM of the Calgary Flames, and he was saying he actually has had to adjust or, or, or kind of make the mental note that he assesses things differently on video than he does in person. Like he said specifically, skating. Like he, he's like, I'm yes. a, a much different grader when I'm watching on video. Versus person, how have you, for someone who's still just kind of breaking into that space, how have you managed to make that adjustment? Well, well, he's right, and you know, in, inside an arena is such a different perspective. Mm-hmm. I think no matter if, no matter what sport I watch, and I, and I kind of evaluate any sport I watch, I evaluate the athletes for, for decades. Um, you miss the first step. Mm-hmm. You miss the first unless they happen to be in that TV shot. Right. You are missing. You are missing the, the thought process. The initial thought process. You're mi- uh, missing the initial move, hmm. front, back, side, uh, quickness of foot. You know, you're missing all of that unless it just happens to capture that for you. Hmm. So, you know, I have to keep that in mind all the time. That you know, I'm I'm missing I'm missing a piece of here that I, I can't get off the television. Yeah, and you can't you know you can't really see the bench. You can't really see uh, how p- people the look on their face. You can't really see you know if they're if they're excited about something, if they're not, if they're if they're if they're here, if they're get, getting a, you know, a review from the coaching staff, right, right, you, know, you right. can't you can't really see that unless it happens to be something pointed. So you yeah. have to take all that into consideration. Have you been able to do some live viewings, or how? Like, what, what, what's what are you not, able to work? Not on? since last March. Yeah, you know, so I, went to, I went to a couple of our, our camps in, in Scottsdale, uh, yeah. a couple of our scrimmages from a distance. You know, you're waving to people that you work with from across the rink. <laughs> Right. Uh, but no, I haven't. I haven't yeah. been in the arena since since last March. Well, one of the things Doug Wilson said when he brought you in was he was excited for a, a fresh perspective, a different perspective of the organization. And I mean, that's something you certainly would would bring. What What have you noticed just about how maybe hockey in general teams are run? And I know you were into it, like you you know you you talked to these guys all the time beforehand. But as you dove into it, like how have you noticed? you know, how they run things in San Jose and what feedback are you giving, Doug? Well, you know, it's, um, I do think I bring a different perspective. You know, I didn't, I didn't draft anybody. I haven't signed anybody. (laughs) I don't have that type of of skin in the game, you know? Um, and I, and I really, I love people who compete. Yes. And, and I, you know, I, when I, when I got the uh, GM job with the Dodgers, uh, John Sherholtz, Hall of Fame general manager from the Braves, who I've known for years, called me, congratulate me. And, um, I said, John, give me a piece of wisdom, you know? And he says, always ask yourself, you know, do you trust the player? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean, you know, he's your superstar. You, you got to trust your superstar, certainly, but it might be, you know, your fourth line center. 
Mm-hmm. It may be your seventh defenseman that that sits out half the time. You know, do you trust? Do you trust the the person and, and the player at the same time? And and that really fits me well with hockey because it, it is such a a sport that demands that mm-hmm. uh, of of any championship team. It, it demands that. And you know what I've missed out on is really a lot of interaction, except on the telephone or on Zoom with the staff there. Right. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the summer with the the Barracuda staff on Zoom talking about leadership, talking about evaluating players. Uh, I've spent time with players, minor league players, talking about, so, okay, how do you make these jumps? How do you go from an AHL player, a brand new professional player to the NHL? How do you do that? And some of it is is identical to any other sport, I'm sure. Yeah. Consistency of performance at a high level. Mm-hmm. You know, you may have half a game in the AHL where you are like NHL ready. You could play on any line, any time in any arena, but you need to do that more than once in a while. Right. It has right. to be where once in a while you don't do that, right. that type of thing, you know? So, um, you know, I've, I've missed out on some of the, of the, this was going to be a big education year for me, which is yeah. observing and being around a lot. But, um, you know, I think, I think as, as I think about, San Jose, and I know the organization well from from living up in San Francisco for a decade and following them during really their their early years. Now they had already started before I got there, but they were they were a young franchise, and mm-hmm. just seeing how they do things and how they think. And I've I've talked to to Doug Senior for so many years about yeah. philosophy and different things, late night conversations about you know what do you do with this, what do you do with that, and vice versa. You know him to me, you know Brian Burke and I used to you know he when he was in Anaheim we'd meet at five in the morning and. and have a breakfast someplace yeah. because he was going through a tough time or I was going through a tough time, but it's things like that, that you, you know, that you get, you get adjusted to, but you know, I mean, it's, it's been interesting to watch and to listen, but I've been able to only do it from a distance lately. Um, before I get sidetracked, um, uh, I know Penguins fans will be curious to get your perspective on Brian Burke and Ron Hextall, who you know, well, um, yes. what, what are they getting in those two and that duo? Well, they're not getting anybody that's emotional. They're not getting anybody that's fired up. They're not getting anybody that's that's oh really gosh. passionate. You know, oh. uh, they are two of the best. Uh, boy, I've spent so much time with both of them. I used to. I live about ten minutes from where the Kings practice mm-hmm. in El Segundo, so I would go over there all the time. And then I would go to games, and I'd sit up in the press box. And uh, this is before I was working for San Jose, and. I'd sit with Hexie and, and Dean Lombardi for a while. And then the next period, I'd go sit with another GM that I knew and vice versa. So I go into El Segundo one day and Hexie goes, come here, I got something for you. And he hands, hands me a Kings jersey with my name and a number on the back. And he goes, now you got all 30, you know, as before <laughs> Vegas. Had it. Yeah. Because he says, you're always talking to everybody. It must be great being you because whoever wins the Stanley Cup – you know, you 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 know who won it. You have yeah. a buddy that just won it. You know, that's, that's not <laughs> quite true. You know, but I, I I love talking to those guys, and uh, I spent a lot of time with Berkey, and and uh, and then and then Hexy when he was here, and talked to him a handful of times when he was in Philly, and, mm-hmm. and going through what he went through there, and then when he got the job in uh, in uh, Pittsburgh, also sent him a congratulations. I think they'll do well. How much of your um, interest in in getting to know these guys is? you know, you're passionate about hockey or is it, I want to get better as a leader or as, as an executive doing what you were doing then? It, it's, it's easily both. Um, yeah. And the leadership part and the executive part. Um, I don't, and I don't mean this disrespectful to any other profession, but 
unless you are sitting in that seat, unless you are running a franchise, the talent side of a franchise, other people really don't know mm. what that is. Mm-hmm. Whether you're whether they're the president of a club or whether they're you know a, a scout or whether they're a player or a coach, uh, you know, or or your best friend. I mean, nobody nobody understands it except for those that have done it. Yeah. And sit there because it's such a different it's it's one of the loneliest jobs in, in professional sport is mm. to be the general manager and to be the leader of a group because you got every decision is going to land on your desk as it should. But, you know, there's a lot of different things that go on. And so a lot of it was was uh, almost crisis management. How do you deal with crisis management? We didn't talk a whole lot about. Hey, this was great. You know, you won the cup, and hey, it wasn't a whole lot of that. Although I was in Anaheim the night that that Anaheim won it, um, you know, and I've been to maybe five or six times where a team skated skated the cup around. Um, but it was really like, how do we deal? How do you do deal with this? Whether it's an ownership issue, whether it's a player issue, whether it's a medical issue with with a player or different things, and uh, those interactions are priceless. Mm. because it, it 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 teaches you and you know one of the things i love about what i've been blessed to be able to do is i learn something every day yeah and i've been doing baseball 40 years i've been doing hockey three um but i learned something every day from athletes by watching by listening and, and how i grew up it you know i had to watch i had to listen i had to pay attention to detail always mm-hmm. every every day and i still do and so you know it to to hear to to watch something and then almost verbally hear the x-ray from somebody is to me is is exciting and it, and it fuels me. it absolutely fuels me every day when you say other people don't know what a manager is going through what is something what do you think is the biggest misconception or people think people don't realize for the person in that chair well i think i think there's so many different factors to it i think um timing Mm-hmm. such a big role you know uh, you get to a trading deadline or a free agent you, you trade for a, a player because a free agent has told you they don't have interest in playing for you so you go and you trade for somebody and then two months later that player signs with your your biggest rival and then the fan base goes well how could they let that happen well you know what it, it's timing you took the burden to hand over waiting on somebody who told you they had no interest and a lot of times they don't understand you know the financial aspect of it the financial picture you know, everything, especially in this day and age now, because so many owners of sports teams, we have no idea what they have gone through on a financial end for the yeah. last 14, 15 months. And one thing can affect the other. And so I think, you know, some of those things and sometimes when you trade a, a so-called fan favorite, yeah. you know, they don't know that that the, the person is constantly injured or constantly hurt or has maybe lost a little bit of the edge or, or maybe isn't as hungry as you need them to be. And things like that. I mean, it's a very, it's a, it's a business that it, it can be very generalized and you can watch it from 30,000 feet or you can just dive into it. And every day teaches you something about somebody. And, and a lot of times those who, who pay attention and watch it as, as fans or as executives from other areas or whatever, you know, they don't know. They don't know everything. It's like, you know, they don't know what went into making the stew, you know. They either like the stew or they don't, but they have no idea what you had to do to get a carrot, you know. They don't need to know, I guess, but, you know, but that's okay. You know, it doesn't matter, you know. Um, I, I wanted to circle back on one thing you said about trust and and your conversations with, with John Schuerholz. What? How does a player earn the trust of his GM? Like, how is that bond formed? 
you you never doubt the effort mm-hmm. and it's um not everybody can give a hundred percent every day right but give me a hundred percent of what you got today because mm-hmm. if people you know there's all sorts of different things going on in life and and injuries and things like that where you're not going to be able to get uh what you expected maybe at a talent level every day it just doesn't happen for anybody but that, that you would get a hundred percent of what they had to give and that you never doubt the effort and, uh, you know, I, I have a long list of players I felt that way about. I have a long list of players that, you know what, I, I, I'm sorry to say it, but you know what, I thought of the effort. Yeah. Especially some guys that I that I paid and I paid well and long term and think because you get in that situation and you have to do that from time to time. There's only so many great athletes in any sport. And, uh, and sometimes you do that and you suddenly see the pilot light kind of flicker a little bit, sure. you know, and, you know, and it starts to become a different thing. But, you know, that's one of them. I think one of the hardest things to balance is, is, you know, the, the guy that, you know, is a max effort guy, but maybe his ceiling is on the third line, right. Versus the guy that's only going to give you 80%, but you know, he has talents that the other guy will never be able to do. How do you balance? I I think that's one of the hardest things fans don't realize in, you know, especially in the world of analytics and everything. It's, it's a really hard thing to strike. Where do you find that balance? Well, it's uh, it's a great point. And it, it is part of the juggle that you go through whenever you put a team together. It's something you have to always think about. And I and I think that uh, communication is huge. And a player that is, is really gifted but is an 80% of, of what you expect, you have to have conversation. And you have to explain, you know, this is this is what our expectation is. You know, if, if you really can't give us any more than 80% but you've been gifted beyond words, you know, let me know and maybe I'll find another spot for you if that's what you really want to do. Right. You know, but you also can, it depends also how you build your team because that, that first player you mentioned, you know, the third line center that gives you everything they've got every day, every shift, every minute, you know, the leadership comes from all different places in your locker room too. It's not just one or two people. Everybody's got a chance at having a piece of leadership. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you know, if, if, if that type of player, that third line player that, that you know is all in all the time, sometimes they can say something. Mm. And I think peers, peers always, I think, have a better opportunity to, uh, to have change occur than superiors, players, or whatever, you know, that you only have so many opportunities to have those types of conversations before you have to make a decision, you know, in or out, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always, and I, and I wasn't perfect at it. You're never going to be perfect at it. But I, I really needed players that cared about winning. Yeah. Unless, unless people make a, a really a, a poor financial decision at some point in time. You know, you're, you're talking about a collection of millionaires, <laughs> you know, across across every team, right? And most people, I think, worry about when they're growing up, okay, am I going to have enough money to have a nice house, family, put my kids in school, all these different things, and, you know, my health is good and things like that. So we've taken away one of those, maybe both of them, because you got some of the best medical care in the world, too, that you're attached to because of professional sport. So you've taken away some of the, what I would call, you know, like the hunger things that you would have as as a young person trying to aspire for a great career. So you, you've kind of taken away some of those just by the nature of the business. So to me, players that really, really wanted to win were guys that I needed to have. Mm. I needed to have it. When I would go and I would look at, at number one, potential number one draft picks in baseball and, and sit them down. And we were always picking. Luckily, we were always picking late in the first round. You know, we, 
the team I inherited, we picked seventh the first year. We got Kershaw, which turned out to be a pretty good pick. I'd That's say. not bad. That's not yeah, bad. We started, we started pretty good. And then, um, you know, as, as you talk to it, I would say, so, you know, what drives you? I mean, some are 18 years old, some are 21 years old, some are college juniors, some are high school seniors, some are in between. What drives you? What, what really drives you? And if I didn't hear win a World Series in there in the first couple minutes, I kind of hesitate. Hmm. I kind of hesitate. If I heard, you know, I want to become a millionaire, I, you know, I love the lifestyle, I want to buy my parents a house, a car. I mean, all these things are fine. That, that's cool. Right. But you know what? Tell me that you want to win a World Series. Yeah. Tell me that you want to that you want to be known for being one of the best players in the game mm-hmm. and a winner. Tell me that. Because you know what? You might be the eight instead of a ten. Right. I'll take you. Yeah. Because that's how you win. Because yeah. in any game, in any game, there's going to come a period of time in the season, in the game, where if you have somebody that doesn't pay attention to detail, they're going to get burned. Mm-hmm. Something is going to happen. The games just find those guys. And, and, and so you need you need those people that are, are focused in on it. All a sport, with rare exception, is a one-on-one battle in a, in a moment in time. Right. It's your hitter or you know, winger skating down on one defenseman back. Or, or just a you know, goalie, a goalie versus score. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's always a one-on-one. How are you going to do in that one-on-one? If you ain't paying attention and you're not geared for it, you'll get beat. Yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24/7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, so, you know, one of the things, and you kind of alluded to it with the pilot light, flickering pilot light comment, um, is when a player gets paid, is that motivation there? And I look at the Sharks. I mean, they're interesting. You have some great players on long-term contracts, contracts, veteran players. How do you, in general, and how do you make sure you're rewarding your players, but you're not, you know, blowing out the pilot light in the process? Well, you have to know who they are. Yeah. You have to, and I, you know, I made my mistakes during my tenure because, you know, sometimes, you have no choice. And, and the worst time to be negotiating is when you don't have a, don't have another really strong option. But I think knowing your players is key and knowing what, what drives them and, and knowing that, okay, you know, you, you, you've made a lot of money and you, you can live wherever you want and do whatever you feel like doing, but is it important to you to, to win a world series, to win a cup, you know, to, to win a championship is, you know, where does that rank? And I, and I think that, uh, you know, especially in a game of hockey, because it's not for the meek. Right. You know, it, it's not for somebody that, that is going to just kind of go through the motions. You, you can't do it. But you, you have to pay attention to it and you have to know it. And, you know, I've done deals in the past where, you know, it's like if you went to buy a house and you, you know, you needed a place to live. And so you bought this house and you, and you knew it was going to be a money pit. Or you, or you <laughs> right. knew it was going to yeah. be disappointing or, you know, I, I'm hoping that I'm going to get 50 cents on the dollar with this guy. Yeah. You know, and, and that happened. It's happened to me, you know, a handful of times. And it's like, you know, I knew going in, oh, this is going to, you know, this is going to be rugged, but I don't have a choice. And I've also been surprised by, by players on both sides of it. The psychology of the athlete is, is such an amazing study to me. 
It, I spent probably, see, I became an assistant GM when that was like uh, 25 years ago, I guess, 26 years ago, and then a GM uh, 16 years ago. And, and at least for that period of time, if not longer, I spent more of my day thinking about this piece of it than anything else. How do you motivate? How do you keep people hungry? How do you keep them driving? Because when you're at this point in the hockey season, guys are getting tired. Guys are getting mentally tired, especially yeah. with this condensed schedule. Uh-huh. I mean, you need a special, special play person inside that, that jersey. And the same thing in baseball. You play 162 days in 183 games, 162 games, 183 days. And then you play, you know, another month. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it, again, it's it's something that I think about daily even even watching it on tv scout and i you know i can kind of tell what players are in and what players are out what players are just kind of going through it and what players you would trust with everything yeah how how many how much similarity is there between a hockey just mentally a hockey player elite hockey player and elite baseball player uh that's a great question um you know, there's different skill sets, but again, scouting, sure, sure. you know, scouting an athlete for me, you know, you start at the feet and you work your way up, you know, how do, how do their feet work? How do their hands work? Um, hockey, the decision-making is so ultra quick. Yeah. And so, um, you know, years and years ago, I was working for the Cubs and uh, at spring training in Mesa, Arizona, and the Edmonton Oilers stopped by two straight years. They had, they play like a Sunday game on the East coast and then they weren't playing at Edmonton until Saturday. So they had this five or six day, stretch they came down from warm weather you know skated and, and stayed ready but came down from warm weather and, and and they came out for batting practice and 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 Gretz, of course was a you know huge baseball fan a baseball player and he was taking bp and stuff like that and i was talking to some of his teammates and they talked about like the vision this man had and his ability to break things down i think no matter i think the similarity of a great athlete is when we watch a game we watch it like a movie it's almost like frame by frame really quick. Right. I think the great athletes, I think they see it frame by frame. Hmm. I think I think guys like Wayne, guys like Michael Jordan in basketball, uh, all you know, you name the, the type of, you know, the great athlete, Barry Bonds, who was around for a long time. Um, they have photographic memories. They have the ability to um, see things in slow motion and play it at real speed mm-hmm. and to see things other people don't see. And to have a ability to take a picture and to have the vision and the and the um, anticipation that most people don't have. And, and when you see it in an athlete, you know it. Yeah, right, right. You know they think different. They yeah. could all you could have a team like you could have the Canada Cup teams, you know, back in the day, or you could have the Olympic teams, or you could have major league all-star teams, and you have nothing but crumb of the crop type right. player talents, but you can still see a difference between the very good and the elite. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really, I think, how they see the game and how they execute it, along with work ethic and, and things like that. But really, how they see it, I think, is different. And, you know, going back to the, the Oilers coming into spring training, and they're, they're telling me, this guy sees stuff nobody sees. <laughs> right, right. You know, and it's like, I mean, obviously he had a career that, that showed you that he saw stuff nobody saw. You know, and, and like Barry, Barry had a uh, such a tremendous memory of things. I'm not sure he knew the name of every pitcher right. he faced, right. but he knew the release point, and he mm-hmm. knew you know where the ball would come out of their hand. He knew that, and and he knew how they were most likely to pitch him. 
Mm. And I would see some incredible things that he would do. I would see him in April look foolish on a pitch, maybe a big curveball, maybe way out in front of a changeup or something, and look really foolish. And later on, maybe in National League West team we'd be playing. Later on, you get to September and you got a key game, key at bat, and now you got the same matchup. And the pitcher throws in the same pitch, and he hits it out into McCovey Cove in yeah. San Francisco. And after the game, I'd say, hey, B, that guy threw the same pitch back in here, but you kind of look kind of silly. And you just go, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I mean, that's yeah. that's different. Not yeah. everybody does that. Not everybody sees it like that and has a memory like that. The greatest ones I've been around, though, they they all have that. To have them in a forum, in a conversation, in a roundtable would be fascinating. Guys like Maddox, who was around a long time, and and Barry. Manny Ramirez, kind of a, you know, different kind of character, but, you know, no fool. I'll tell you what, yeah. sharp as can be, understood it. Nomar Garcia Parra, who I do TV work with now, we were just talking about this the other day. And a lot of the hockey guys, you just see this this approach to their profession that is a cut above everybody. It's probably how they see it mm-hmm. and can slow it down and execute what they see in a split second. Right. Sidney Crosby's like that. He's what, when you talk to him about plays and goals and he, he the recall is, you know, is unbelievable stuff that happened 20 years it's ago. It's interesting that you bring him up. Uh, two two quick stories with Sid, because uh, of my relationship with Tony Granato. Mm-hmm. When, when the Penguins would come to L.A., I would go out to the morning skater if they were practicing in El Segundo. I'd hang there, and I, I got to know Sid a little bit. And in 08 and 09, the Dodgers had played the Phillies in the NLCS both years, and we got beat both years trying to get to the World Series. And I think that the same period of time, Detroit had beaten Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm in the finals and then Pittsburgh the next year beat Detroit. Okay. We were coming up to the 09 season. I think it's somewhere in that time frame. And so I asked Sid, I said, tell me what change where you lost to a team in the finals and you won, you beat that team the next year. Mm -hmm. And he said something along the lines of, you know, when we first played them, we were, we were so respectful and awe of their talent. Mm. And then we brought other players in, veterans in the next year who told us, that's fine. But, you know, have respect for your talent, too. Mm-hmm. And understand that, you know, you can play with these guys. You can beat these guys. And he said, we carried it all, all the way through. I don't know, Billy Garrett maybe joined that, that yeah. second Pittsburgh team or, or somebody like that. But it was that type of thing. And, and then the other piece of Sid, and, and you're exactly right about how he thinks when I watch him play, you know, I, I, Pittsburgh's one of my teams. So I've seen him play probably 35 times in the yeah. last two years. It's rare I don't see something for the first time. Hmm. How he uses his feet, how he uses his mind, how he, you know, it's like he's a study into himself. I've, yeah. You know, he's one of the all-time greats because of how he does it. I've seen him use his feet like he's Pele or like one of the greatest <laughs> yeah. soccer yeah. players of all time. Just in direction or, or what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. You know, fascinating. To think he, here he is all these years later and you can watch a clip of him from last night and he's doing something you've never seen oh, him yeah. do before. Yeah, he'll teach you something about the game every day if you pay attention. Oh, yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, all right. Well, you um, – correct me if I'm wrong. You got it, You got your start in hockey, I would say, as a beat writer, right, in Philly? That's correct. I, uh, I was smart enough to know in, in high school – uh, in early college that I was not going to be a professional athlete. Yeah, right. So I got a degree in journalism. I'm not sure how smart that was, but I knew <laughs> that I wasn't going to be able to, to follow my passion of being an athlete and getting paid for it. 
And so I, I, I rode hockey and I, I covered, uh, before that, I covered the Big Ten, uh, basketball and football when Bobby Knight was a coach and Woody Hayes and, and Shem Becker and those guys. And then I went to Philly and I covered the Flyers for a couple of years. And uh, it was one of the coolest experiences of all time. You know, Clarkie was there and I can remember we went to training camp in Portland, Maine. And I just got in a little hotel you're staying at and I get in the hotel elevator and floor down, elevator door opens up, it's Bob Clark. And he puts his hand out. He goes, hi, I'm Bobby Clark. You must be the new guy, Ned Coletti. And he says, yeah. And he goes, nice to meet you. I thought, Whoa, here we go, you know. Yeah. But it was cool. I, and I still, I was there for two years, and I still have friends for a lifetime. This was like in 1980 to 82. Then my dad got sick, and I, and I the newspaper closed. And uh, I, had a, I had a scramble to, to get back, and that's how I got in the basement. Uh, do you think it, being on that side of the equation, did that inform how you – I guess, dealt with the media when you're now in the front office? No doubt. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a really a, a quick a, a quick uh, resume type of story. Uh, I was the first in my family to go to college. I lived in a garage till I was five years old. Uh, had great parents. They're just, they just you know struggled to make ends meet. Factory worker, my dad. My mom uh, worked in the home. Mom, the cook, housewife, uh, you know, organizer, boss. Um, and so my Dad got sick when I was in Philly. Dad developed lung cancer at the age of 49. And uh, my mom had never driven a car. And as, as my career started to take off in that direction, uh, my, I, still, I have a younger brother who was still in school. And so um, I had to come back. I had to figure out a way back to fill it off your journal closed right before Christmas in, in uh, 1981. And I was fortunate that somebody I worked with in Philly um, hired me a, in a PR role. I took uh, Dallas Green was my first boss, and Bob hmm. Ibach was the person who covered the Flyers before me, and he was hired as a PR director. And so he knew I was going through a tough time. He said, we have two jobs here, one in PR, one in publications. We have 50 people in each one trying to get these jobs. We're going to pay $13,000 a year. Uh, if you want to interview for one, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do that for you. And I said, okay. I said, could I talk to Dallas? You know, And he said, well, yeah, but you can't talk about money. I said, well... Okay, uh, you know, can I talk to him? 60 seconds. He says, yeah, sure. So I get him on the phone. I said, hey, Dallas, nice to meet you. This and he had just taken over as a GM and managed the Phillies to the World Series in 80. And he says, uh, so what do, you, what do you need? What do you, what do you want to talk to me about? Anything but money. I said, well, I want you to consider paying me $15,000 a year if I get a job and 1000 to move back. And he cuts me off. He says, you can't, you know, you're not doing this. You know, I got enough people. I'll, I'll pay whatever I feel like. I said, you didn't hear me out, though. You, I, I got 30 seconds left. I'll do both jobs. Hire me for both. You'll save money. I'll be able to afford the house I just bought and can't really, you know, yeah. I don't have a gig right now and I got to get home. And so he did. So to, this is a long way to answer your question. So me working in the media helped me understand it. Me working in media relations for a professional team like the Cubs for three years also helped me understand it. So then when I became assistant GM and GM and and, and then in the media later, did a on the TV, the TV side, you know, I see it. I understand it. I understand what you do. Yeah. You know, I understand why you do what you do and how you do what you do. I, I have an appreciation for it. And so, yeah, it was, it was helpful. All these things that you do as a, as a younger person that you wonder, what am I doing this for? Is this ever going to pay a dividend? Is this ever going to lead me to the promised land of what my goals and aspirations are? I found out that everything I ever did helped me get to today. Whatever that, whatever I'm viewed as it today, it, it all helped me get there. One of the things you said in that era was um, you were willing to do jobs that other people weren't. 
and, yes. and give it your all. Any yes. examples of that? Oh, uh, in college, I went to a JC first. I could got, I could not get accepted in any four year school. I was mm. a class clown. I was not. I had no confidence. No, no, no chance. And, and so I had to work in a print shop. And it's maybe the only time I ever looked at the clock. It was like <laughs> an eight hour day seemed like a month. Yeah. You know, different things like that. But, you know, I've tended bar. I've, I've done all these other things. And, and you learn about people. And not everybody wants to, you know, wait tables or, or, mm-hmm. or do these different things that, that I did on the way up. But it, it all taught me something. When I, you know, when I got out of college, I started working at a daily newspaper or a, a tri-weekly. And then also at the Chicago Daily News, which is long gone now, but was, I mean, had a ton of Pulitzer Prize winners on it. And I was covering high school. That folded. I went downstate to Danville, Illinois, like 30 miles east of Champaign-Urbana. I mean, you know, I'm a city boy. This was this was not a city, <laughs> a city city, you know. And uh, and I can't tell you that I loved it. I can't tell you that I loved being there every day. But I knew I had to get better. And I knew that, okay, you know, how do I use my time? Am I going to sulk? Am I going to be agitated that I'm not working in a big city or I'm not doing this? No, I, I got to use my time to the best of my ability. So volunteered for extra work, volunteered to, you know, drive to Purdue to watch Purdue play Michigan in, in, in basketball on a Tuesday night in the middle of a snowstorm, mm-hmm. you know, volunteered for things to continue to refine my craft and to, to stay after and take nothing for granted. Nothing ever have I ever taken for granted. Hmm. You said of your dad, he, he taught us to respect, to help and to work. And to help is an interesting part of that equation. To help, my dad was uh, he was the kind of person that um, could fix anything, mm. and so uh, we lived in um, we lived in the city and we lived in the garage. They lived in the garage for the first ten years of their marriage. I came along five years in. Uh, you know, you got a massive divorce rate in the world today. You know that these people would stay married till my dad died, and they lived in a garage for a decade. I mean, you know, who, today could people do that? You know, I don't know who could do that. <laughs> Probably fewer than did, but uh, you know, he just worked. He worked. He worked hard. He was honorable, uh, trustworthy. Um, just, just stayed after and taught my brother and I and my mom the same thing. She, you know, they taught us to be, to be helpful to people. People could knock on on our door in the middle of the night if their furnace went out or if their car wouldn't start. If they had a problem, and my dad would get up and fix it, figure out how to fix it. Hmm. And uh, you know, that's just that's just how he was. And and sadly, you know, he got sick, and I got back to Chicago and started my Cub career. On uh, January third of nineteen eighty-two, and um, uh, he died that April. Mm. In fact, tomorrow will be the thirty-ninth anniversary of my dad's death, mm. April twenty-seventh. So you know, he missed a lot. He missed a lot of different different things. But I think about him every day. I actually, people, most people don't know this. I have two tattoos. Not the kind of guy you would probably think would. No, have a I tattoo. wouldn't have guessed that. No, but um, I was reading this this great book. Um, by Tim Russell, who was used to be on the Meet the Press, and he talked about him and his dad, and he talked about his son Luke, and um, how Luke went off to college, and 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 Tim and his son were were as tight as could be, and um, son goes off to college in Boston or someplace like that, and he comes back to New York for the Christmas holidays, and he's trying a shirt on, and he's got this this uh, tattoo on his side, and and and, and Tim's wife. Uh, you know, so what are you, what are you doing? You know, your your son. Oh, how's how's your son doing? You know, he's like all the rest of the college kids out. Oh, he's got a tattoo, and 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 Luke says, "Hey, calm down. This is all in the book. Calm down, calm down." And he and he says, "Dad, I just this is your initials. 
I just wanted your initials. I want, always want you by my side. Oh, man. So I have my dad's initials on my left side and my mom's initials on, the, on my right side, both in their handwriting and in their script. Oh. And uh, yeah, I just I decided to do that after my dad left. I had my mom find an old, an old letter or a check check yeah. or something, and I took his initials off there. So I've been very well blessed. I've been blessed beyond measure in my life. Where I come from, most people don't have the opportunities I have. Don't get me wrong; I've worked and I've I've done what I needed to do. But but uh, a lot of people I know never made it out of high school. Hmm. I'm not talking about dropping out. I'm just talking about never making it. Yeah. Let's take our last break and and um, I still have four pages of notes, so maybe we'll get to a quarter of them, but that's all right. When- <laughs> Whatever you want to do. I could, I, could, I could do the full 90. Yeah, that's a, we just did a full 90. It was great. All right. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. It's, gosh, there's so many directions to go here. I I, I do want to – it was funny. I, I, I laughed that you're a Chicago kid. You're growing up, uh, you know, in in watching the Blackhawks. And I believe your first jersey was Jean Beliveau. Is that right? That's gutsy. My That's hero. a gutsy move in the na- Chicago neighborhood. It was. I was the only kid skating out of the Plains River in a Canadian jersey. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was. It was my. I know. I picked. A, I picked a great one. And uh, you know, my, one of my early Cub days, I was walking around Montreal. We're up there to play the Expos. I walked down St. Catherine Street to the Forum. You know, loved it. You know, saw it every Saturday night when when the Hawks would be playing in Toronto or in Montreal back in the original six. I walked down there and I walked into the reception area and I said, "Hey, is Mr. Bellavo here?" Handed my business card to the person. I said, "All I want to do is say hello. I'm a huge fan." Yeah. Five minutes later, there he was, and uh, I've got letters from him. I've got recordings from Mr. Bellavo on my phone. Ah. Um, just a tremendous gentleman. He and Vince Scully. Uh, are probably in my life and times in sports, two of the greatest at what they did mm-hmm. and two of the best people I've ever known in my life. That's amazing. That's a photo of John right there behind me that I have signed of him that I, I bought because I just, first of all, I mean, he's, you're right. He's in terms of the classiest people in the world and what they did is at the top. And I also just love like, of that era like he's talking to people in the crowd and they're all dressed to the nines and i just love yes. that that snapshot of a moment in yes. time um you know what's cool about the, not to interrupt you but yeah, like no. in hockey when you scout i wear a suit all the time mm-hmm. i wear a suit to scout you know there's a lot of guys scouting baseball i mean you don't know if they just got them washing their car or what they're doing <laughs> you know but yeah in fact i just bought a brand new suit and i have sharks lining on the inside of it oh look at that oh yeah i oh, love yeah. that yeah so it's it's very cool it's very classy classy sport uh, i when i was getting my start as a national writer i was doing something on the canadians it was an anniversary or something and and uh talking to the pr guy there and he's and I needed a Sean Belvoir. Now, you know, I'm a nobody. He doesn't know me from anybody. And he's just like, here's his home number. And, you know, give him a, give him a ring. Like, it was, you know, landline, old school. Yes. He picks right up. And I could have, you know, I could have been somebody he'd been dealing with for a thousand. Like, I couldn't have been more comfortable in that conversation. Yeah. 
Just remarkable. I have, know, I have a dozen John Belleville, John Belleville stories. Uh, he's, he, it was Phenomenal. amazing. So did you get a chance to go to the Blackhawks games growing up? I'm, you know, I don't know what. A couple. It yeah. was, it was one of the toughest tickets in town. Yeah. Um, and the cost was way beyond what my family could afford. But, uh, my dad and I went, I can remember the first game, the, the Rangers beat the Hawks four to two. Um, uh, I have the date written down someplace. This was like in the maybe 67, 68, somewhere in there. But uh, I go once in a while. And and luckily the Hawks were on TV. At least their road games are on TV. Yeah. So I would watch all those games. You know, original six. Guys, you know, teams played certain nights of the week at home. Hawks were always home Sunday night. Montreal, Toronto, always home Saturday night. Hockey night in Canada. Yeah. You know, so, uh, yeah. And I, I fell in love with it at an early age, early, early age. So uh, one of the things I wanted to ask, it's, you know, you, you're working your way up through the, the system, uh, you know, from journalism into the PR side. And then you make – at some point you make the leap into the kind of the roster construction part of, you know, instead of kind of the business ops with PR. When was that? And, what, what, you know, I, I'm sure – I know there's a lot of people listening that are, you know, writers or they're on the other part. They're like, okay, that's, that's a pretty big leap. Well, here's how it, you know, I, I told you a little bit about how I ended up with the Cubs. Yeah. I told Dallas Green I would do two jobs. Right. And, and I'm, I, I, I'm, I wish I would have asked him this question. He, he passed away a couple of years ago. I wish I would have asked him this question before, before he left. Because a couple of years after I did this, late on a Tuesday night, right before Thanksgiving, I was always the first in there, always the last one to leave. He walked by with an attorney and he says, this is uh, so-and-so from the, the law firm in Washington, D.C. that we use for salary arbitration cases. Mm. Um, I want you to, to work with them. We're going to have Leon Durham go to a hearing, most likely. And um, I want you to work with him. You know the game. You've been traveling with the team. You know, you played some, so you got a great feel for it. Help him out. He's a brilliant lawyer. Frank Casey, brilliant. But, you know, he hasn't been around the Cubs all year. He lives in Washington, D.C. So I started doing it then. And we prevailed in the case. And Dallas complimented me for it. And then little by little, he continued to give me more and more responsibility. Mm. Okay, I was still in PR. I was still in publications. But he said, I want you to spend a week in the minor leagues. I want you to spend a week with this scout, amateur scout. I want you to spend a week at the trading deadline with, with this scout. And so he continued to introduce me to more and more things. And the question I wish I would have asked him mm-hmm. is, is did he choose me to do that because of how I approached him for a job? Mm. I'll do two jobs, pay me for one, a little bit more than you're going to pay just to touch more. You'll save yourself 10 grand. You'll save yourself the insurance for another person, the, the annual raises, all those things. But I, you know, and, and you can fire me. I told him you can fire me if you don't like my work, but you know what? You're going to like my work. I didn't mean a cocky. Yeah, sure. I just knew that I just knew that I could do whatever I needed to do to survive. I'd seen it in my family. And so, you know, he gave me opportunity and, you know, I was straddling the line. One of my dearest friends in baseball was Andre Dawson. Hmm. And I was doing a salary arbitration cases. I was also his top PR guy when he won the MVP. And then, like, this is in, you know, all season long. He comes to the Expos. We sign him. He goes off to have an MVP year. And then in February, I'm sitting across the arbitration table from him. And he's looking at me like, <laughs> what are we doing here? You know, you're my buddy. I signed up. But, like, you know, I don't know what to tell you, you know. Yeah. But I just got opportunity. And, you know, again, I've, I'm not the smartest guy you're ever going to talk to, Craig. 
You know, I'm, uh, if, if, if analytics were so important to my, you know, in, in hiring of a GPA and where you went to school and all these other things, you know, I'd be working in a factory in Franklin Park. Yeah. I just, I just took advantage of opportunity and I never, I never stood on the table and said, Hey, look at me. I'm the best. And you ought to, you ought to hire me. And I, you know, I never, I just hope people looked and people realized that, that I was trustworthy and that, that I, I would do everything I could to make it work. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've got 40 years. You know what I did today for the first time in 40 years? What's that? I picked up my first world series ring. You did today. Yes. Got my first World Series ring. I've been to the World Series four times. Finally got one. Well, congratulations, first of all. Thank you. 14,360 days. Divide that by 365. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't ask you. Did Dallas Green give you the 15,000? He got you the job. Did he give you the money? Okay, that's good. He did. He gave me the 15,000. You know, he did it. And and then when I won the Sally arbitration case, I says, you know, I I could use a a little bit more iron here. And he says, yeah, I think I'll give you 5,000. I said, I just won you 150. You're going to give me five? He said, you got it. Oh, that's great. He was great. He was, he was, I love the man. He was, he was a great leader. You said once he might've been one of the best leaders you ever came across. Um, What was it about his style that, that stood out to you or that really made an impact? He, um, he held you accountable. He held you so accountable and he, he gave you opportunity, but not without the cost of accountability attached to it. Mm. And you didn't want to let him down. It's one thing to have somebody mad at you. It's another thing that, you know, sometimes it's okay if your parents are mad at you, but you never want to disappoint them. Yeah. And that's how it was with Dallas. And, you know, he, you know, he used to get on me all the time and, and another coach named John Bukovic who passed away a few years ago. Great. One of my dearest friends. Yeah. We'd be in meetings there'd be twelve of us. And you know, I he we were the two guys he always counted on. And he would just hammer us in these meetings. And Buka played for him in, in Philly. So one day I go to Buka, I said, Dallas is really tough on you and me. What what are we doing here? He goes, Yeah, well. He says, Not only do we know that, but the other guys in the room know it too. And they know that he depends on us. So he's using us to make sure that they know they better turn it up because if he'll jump us, he'll jump everybody. But he's one of my favorite people of all time. We'll always be there. Mm. Give me a chance, an opportunity that came with it. The other guy you mentioned in that s- sentence was Jim Finks. We haven't talked about Jim Finks as yes. one of the greatest leaders. What, I, I don't know anything. I don't know much about Jim. What, what, what can you tell me about his leadership style? Jim Finks was an NFL executive. Mm-hmm. When you look back in the history of the Super Bowl, the Minnesota Vikings uh, went a lot early on, and, and he was the leader of it. He came to Chicago. He built the Bears. He wasn't there in 86 when they won the Super Bowl, but he put that team together. He came to help Dallas out in a presidential role for about 14 months. We didn't have lights at Wrigley Field. We had a lot of things going on. And so they took a little bit of the off-the-field stuff, the lights issue, number one, and, and gave it to, to Jim. But Jim Finks was revered in, in, in Chicago and in sports. He was almost the NFL commissioner. Yeah. I mean, when Tagliabue got the, the opportunity. And um, I was, if, if there were 100 people in the organization, I might have been 95th on the list. Yeah. Right. But he took time to be with everybody. Hmm. And he called me in. He said, so tell me, what do you got in mind? What do you think you're going to do? What do you think you want to be? How can we help you get there? He did it with everybody. Uh-huh. And he just took a he took an interest 
And even years later, he went on to lead the Saints after the Cubs. With the Cubs oh, yes. Okay, months. yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the NFL meetings would be so many times in Phoenix during spring training. My phone would be, ring, it would be him. He'd go, what are you doing? Let's have dinner. Hmm. And, and, I mean, he was one of the big, big guys in the NFL for decades. And he always took the time to care. He always took the time to listen and always had advice. I, I miss him dearly. He was he was just a special, special guy. It's how you treat people. Yeah, yeah. And you have to give people opportunity. There's no doubt. But, you know, it's it's just a communication that these people had. Again, you know, I was a, I was a kid that lived in a garage that barely got into college. I, you know, had, you know, was hanging by a thread, you know. And they still took the time to to give me advice and to to hold me accountable, which I never forget. Um, all right, last topic here, and this is really self serving on my part because I'm yeah. in a contract year. You've negotiated two billion dollars in contracts, uh, or at least. Yes. Um, what what does it take to win a negotiation? Leverage. <laughs> yeah. But here's what you need. Here's what you need to do. Um, and I teach this at Pepperdine. Yeah. You got to. First thing you have to do is research. You have to know everything you can know about what people get paid for what they do, the, the situation with a company, the, who the person is you're going to be talking to. Are they truthful? Do they? I mean, I did all my work with you know against agents, That's varying right. degrees of of uh, integrity, I guess. But you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, and so you have to research. Research is key. Know everything. Yeah. Whenever I would go to see ownership, my goal was they'll never be able to ask me a question about an idea I have that I won't be able to answer. I never wanted to say, hey, let me get back to you on that. Never. I had to know everything. So it helped me in my research. The other thing is preparation. Some people see research as preparation. I don't see research as preparation. Preparation to me is how you think and how you will unfold page by page your conversation, your talk track, your thought process. And sometimes you can be scripted, but it doesn't make any difference because you may hear something that's going to be totally out of left field, so to speak. Yeah. How do you adjust to that? How do you prepare your mind to be ready for all sorts of different different detours into your thought process? Another thing is to be able to listen. You have to be able to listen. I learn nothing from talking. I learn everything from listening. You've got to be able to listen. And if you're on the buying side, uh, you have to have the courage to say no. Yeah. You have to have the, a lot of people don't want to ever say no. Think about an agent's job is to get the most, right? If you don't say no, every negotiation I did ended with me saying, I'm done. This is now a yes, sir, and no. Yeah. Call me back in a half hour. Tell me if you're taking a deal. Tell me if you're not. I have nothing more to give you. I have nothing more to offer. I'm ready to walk away. I'm okay walking away. I want the player. Absolutely. Have to have the courage to do that. Mm. Then the last thing is the timing piece of it, which I alluded to earlier. Timing is such an important role, and most people don't even pay attention to timing. But when they look back on a negotiation, timing always matters. Where where are people at in a certain point in time and the crossroads of of a situation? And what is the timing of it? And to, to understand how to use timing to a benefit, or if you have no control over the timing, at least be aware of it. Maybe you can push it. If, if you know that, you know, budgets are going to be slashed and different things are going to be happening. Hey, you know what? I'm going to get in there sooner than later. Yeah. I'm going to try and make an inroads. I'm going to try and I got to listen, hear what they say. They may give me a hint that everything's going to be cool. I got to keep pushing that way. Or they may give me a hint that, hey, you know what? I may not be in their plans mm -hmm. going forward. 
Mm-hmm. I need to know that. I need to listen and pay attention. Those are key things. Call me if you need me to make a call. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's going to go okay. I feel I feel all right. We're it's it's, it's early. Was there any negotiation that stands out to you, like a player that was it was exhausting? Oh gosh, uh, I signed uh, Barry after Barry hit seventy three home oh runs gosh, with the agent. Yeah, um, you know that was that was a. Uh, I just hired Scott Boris, you know, probably the, the most influential and best agent in baseball. I, I go back with Scott many, many years. Um, That's a good that one. That one was, was big. Uh, Zach Renke. I mm-hmm. signed Zach here in L.A. and I signed Hunjin Ryu back-to-back days. Uh, you know, I signed Zach. I gave him an out after three years because I, I knew that he may or may not like it in L.A. and may want to have a chance to go someplace else. And may have a chance to cash in, but in the meantime, we'd be getting his best three years. I was cool with that. He was fifty-one and fifteen. He took off for Arizona and ended up in Houston, you know. And we signed Unjun Ryu the day after. Signed him out of Korea. Mm. I signed him on a Sunday with Scott. I signed uh, Zach on, on Saturday with Casey Close. Mm. And uh, you know, so those are pretty good ones. Um, you know, you got to pay attention. You got to know who you're dealing with. And I knew what agent I could call, and I knew I was going to get a lot of bs where i was gonna get you know playing with the language hey what so what do you got out there well i've got uh i've got uh five and sixty oh okay you're thinking five years and sixty million well that doesn't necessarily mean that he's got five and sixty million in the same deal he may have a 50 million, <laughs> he may have a 50 million dollar deal for five years that's 10 a year it's not 12 yeah we may have an eight-year deal for you know, for sixty, you know that ain't the number either. I got five and sixty. Well, listen, pay attention. Mm. That don't mean he's got twelve. That must that might mean he's got something else. So I'd say, so what do you got? You know, what do you really got? What do you, you really got, got? You got sixty. You got twelve a year? No, no, I don't have. Oh, okay. What do you got? Let's go. That's great. Five and sixty, not five times sixty. That's her right. five <laughs> equals. Yeah, that's awesome. For, for five to or sixty yeah, to five. Yeah, five, five. That's right. That's right. Well, Ned, this was so fun and. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And congratulations on the ring. I love that. that we thank to talk you. To you. Thank you very much. Thank you for thinking of me. And thank me for, for putting me on it. You know, I, I hope that, uh, you know, I hope we meet. And I hope that uh, we meet in an ice skating rink someday. Yeah, you know? same. And, Absolutely. I'm looking yeah, forward to I that day. That, uh, that anybody who listens to your, your show uh, gains something from what we talked about. Oh, they will. I know they will. Thanks for doing right. this. You're welcome. I want to thank Ned Coletti for joining the podcast. It was, it's a great conversation. It covered so many topics that I love from the path people take to roster construction, building a team, building a winner. And man, I have to tell you, I wish that we had recorded that conversation um, after the Rangers fallout. Uh, as I sit here and record this, um, and this is going to drop the next day, but we are, you know, one day removed from the Tom Wilson statement, uh, two days from, you know, the hit and the, all the controversy that surrounded it. Um, and they just cleaned house in New York. It's, it's wild. Um, and we're still waiting for answers. I mean, in perhaps when you're listening to this, more will have emerged because this is happening as we speak. Um, but you know, some of the theories being floated and in this we can talk about generally is that the Rangers as constructed were too reliant on skill, not enough, uh, battle and strength and all the kind of the hockey cliches. You talk about, and it almost gets at some of the things that Ned was talking about. You know, when you're talking about players and player evaluation and want to win, I think sometimes in the hockey space, 
um, that gets lost for like size and toughness when some of these teams that you see have success. Um, it's it's not necessarily size. It's it's that desire. It's that battle. It's it's finding that right skill. And oftentimes in a rebuild, um, those are the last p- pieces you plug in. Like that. If I'm looking at a rebuild process, and let's say through the lens of the New York Rangers, I have a really hard time looking at what Jeff Gordon had done there um, in really having an issue with it. Certainly not anything that would cost him his job, right? Like they cut bait at the exact right time so that they still had assets to move and Ryan McDonough and some of those players at the time. And you can we can look back and say, yeah, did they get enough for those players? I think that's that's a decent debate. But in terms of timing – I always thought the Rangers were very smart in how they handled it. Sometimes these teams wait too long until those guys are either on the last year of their contracts or move on or too old and don't have any worth. And I don't think the Rangers did that. Um, got good value. Hit on some p- picks. I mean, this this team is loaded with young talent. Um, you know, made, added Panarin. Like the Rangers, I, I, like the stunning thing to, to me, and, you know, again, it's very much in the moment, but you look at that, like, this is a team that's clearly on the rise. Um, I'm sure a ton of rebuilding teams would ch- trade rosters for immediately. And, um, you know, any notion that, you know, Tom Wilson had his way with his team, there's none of toughness. Like, that's, you know, that's some of the stuff that you plug in at the very end. And I, I look at the way the Tampa Bay Lightning have had success. You know, they added the skill. Um, and then you get, you get over the mountain when you, when you make some deals. You look at the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, who knows how the playoffs are going to go, but I suspect it's going to go pretty well for the Maple Leafs. And, you know, they they have the skill players. They add some of the toughness. They add some of the character. Like, like that's, you know, that that's almost the cherry on top. And when you're in a rebuild, it's, it's you got to focus on skill, in, you, in my opinion. Um, and I, man, I thought the Rangers were doing a good job of that. So it's, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. Um, I, you know, and, and it would have been fun to talk to that. So if you're wondering why I didn't ask about any of that, that's because we recorded that interview well before all of that happened. Along those lines, um, I do want to highlight that Bill Daly was on Scott and Pierre's episode of, um, the athletic hockey show and he got into part part of the news of the day, the statement from the Rangers and, and a few of the things. I mean, Bill Daly, gosh, has always got a he's always putting out fires, always dealing with something. And he took on a lot of interesting topics in that. Didn't get into the firing because it hadn't happened yet. But um the statement, the Olympics, the playoffs, a lot on Bill Daly's plate. So if you want to hear what he had to say to Scott and Pierre, definitely check out that and all episodes of the Athletic Hockey Show and Sean McIndoo and Haley Salvian and Ian Mendez are on. It's, it's fantastic. Another strong recommendation um, on the podcast front, go listen to Katie Strang's conversation with Jeff Patterson and Thomas Trance on the VanCast. Got into the Jake Vertanen situation and Katie, as she does, um, covered it with, uh, talked about it with perspective, with tact, with experience. Um, she, She's brilliant when it comes to that. So if you want to understand what goes into reporting about that, uh, to get a little bit more of a handle of that situation, go listen to that episode. It's it's really good. Uh, last couple things. If you're not subscribing to The Athletic, go to theathletic.com slash full60 to get in at $3.99 a month. And if you want to help out the pod, if you're a fan and you appreciate it and you want to Help out a little bit. Go rate and subscribe on Apple. It helps helps bring it to the top of the charts, helps spread the word. Um, I would greatly appreciate it. 
All right. <laughs> That's a lot. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Ned for joining the podcast and have a great week. <laughs>